So, uh, this is another episode of The Brilliant. And uh, I'm taking advantage of the fact that I'm getting to hang out with a couple people who uh, I've actually known for almost 20 years. I actually met Rotten like the week before uh, the Battle of Seattle in Olympia, Washington. Um, but anyway, so, so this is going to be one of the episodes in the 70s. Uh, mostly what it is that we're talking about is this idea of what anarchism has to offer today. And I just finished an episode talking with Rotten about uh, the good old days <laughs> and um, uh, hopefully because of the unique individuals that I'm talking to here we can talk a little bit more about what today looks like but um, uh, so it looks like this conversation is going to be with me uh, Aragorn Rotten and Belligerence who's um, uh, who many of you may recognize his voice <clears throat> Um, let's hope not. <laughs> yeah, let's hope not. So, anyways, I, I, I mean, the first real question is, it felt like 20 years ago, we had a lot of people who are our peers, mm -hmm. who are around us, who, if they weren't maybe exactly step in step with us, they at least were thinking about the same problems and, and grappling with them. Now, obviously, I'm in a bit of a different situation because I do live in the city, but I don't have any peers in the city. And even the old timers that you know that used to be around, like Barry Pateman, mm -hmm. um, they're gone. They're gone, and and most of it's because, of course, the Bay Area is known for being outrageously expensive, mm -hmm. and everybody leaves town. But you know, the thing that we do have in common, and that we hadn't had more in common, you know, 15 years ago, was being involved in magazines. And magazines was a place where a lot of people were, of course, of course uh, associated with magazines. So we we had peers during that period of time because we had people who were doing magazine projects, mm -hmm. you know, who were either near our age or, or around us. I guess the question is today, where do we find our peers? Mm -hmm. Especially if you're not really doing the internet. Like I think from an age perspective that Ian Mackay guy who did the anarchist FAQ, I don't think he's too much older than us, but almost everybody else is either 10, 20 years older than us or 10 or 20 years younger than us. We're like the lost generation. And it's worth mentioning that we're also the generation that came into anarchism through punk. And so on some level, it's a little surprising that we're the lost generation because it does seem like there's still a lot of punks around that are our age. Yeah, I, I think that is that is worth mentioning that that was the formative uh, entry point for many of us of our generation. And I think, uh, I think there's a lot of people of our generation who haven't entirely vanished and who are still attempting to live anarchy and create it in their own lives i think they're choosing to do so off the radar and at this point in my life i feel that like i partially fall into that category that's my strategic approach to dealing with the enemies of freedom who are ever present and ubiquitous well and of course the last few years if, if they haven't taught me anything it's it's that, that that the price to pay for being a public face is not worth it isn't worth it exactly yeah, absolutely exactly no, I would say the same thing as you belligerents. I mean, what do, what do anarchists do these days? We turned compost piles yesterday, and <laughs> our, our, we have a more practical, everyday kind of reality where we have to. We're trying to rely less and less on the system to meet our daily needs, and that includes relationships with each other. Like me and belligerents, I don't think either one of us spends much time online, right? Hello. 
And so all the relationships we have are face to face, which feels so much more meaningful to me. Um, and, and then the, the fights that we have in our lives tend to be more localized. Like where I come against the petty tyrants in our community and come up against them. And inevitably emerge victorious. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got a crew that backs me. <laughs> and I'm just happy that a lot of my accomplices 10, 15 years ago, a number of them live, live around here now. So sure. I'm able to, on a weekly basis, interact with people that I have a deep connection to. Well, I mean, I think the related question, you know, of course it makes sense that if you need to make a living, you don't want to be a public personality within a radical anarchist space. Um, and most people need to make a living. Mm -hmm. um, there are some people our age that are that are doing public projects still because it makes sense for their career. They're either working for some sort of like nonprofit mm -hmm. or they're a teacher of some sort or another. You know, but even someone like Alejandro, who 10 years ago was very present and very much around our circles, you know, he basically disappeared into his job. Mm -hmm. And while you can read his job, if you, you know, <laughs> close one eye and look around a corner, you might read it as still being the same project. You would have to really do some gymnastics to make that happen. I mean, for me personally, I felt like I was putting out far more energy into things when I went outward in what I was putting my energy into than... Uh, the more localized I was putting my energy, the more I was getting at, more fulfilled I was feeling. Basically, the, the closer to home my energy was put, the more I was feeling it was being fulfilled, my goals. Well, I... Um, and I see that as consistent with my perspective about the world. So, uh, it, you know what I mean? Like, it didn't matter anymore that we were putting out a magazine that was going to Australia. Like, that to me didn't mean anything anymore yeah i guess it's hard for me to to rest there for a variety of reasons not the least of which is that um, um whatever i mean I, I i don't want to turn this into a fight about our, our choices yeah um but i think that a listener would basically say of course the response to doing a public project is to retire for a while uh -huh. and and that it's the question is, what does that sort of mean for anarchism? Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, one of the, maybe one of the lessons that's the hard lesson is that maybe anarchism became a counterculture out of the '60s, and as a counterculture became a phase in people's lives, mm -hmm. where it's perhaps okay to grow old and have some kooky ideas, <laughs> yeah. as long as you don't don't do anything about them. That's okay. I I think I take issue with the word retirement because I. I don't think either of us view ourselves as retired. Um, Did I say that? Okay. Yeah. No, I just, I feel that like in, in my case, it was a recognition that certain approaches had become ineffective and were probably ineffective from the start, like yeah. over mm -hmm. social confrontation, which many of our friends are addicted to yes. and will continue to blindly cheerlead for the next five or 10 years of their, their lives before they begin to feel worn out by it and disillusioned with it all i i reached that point of disillusion and i saw how orchestrated it all was um how i was actually playing into my enemy's hands i do think there's some existential joy in liberation to be experienced mm -hmm. in those moments but 
the joy and liberation that I want to experience in these moments of anarchy that I'm able to seize and manifest. I'm trying to like manifest lived anarchy in my own life in a, in a form that isn't easily monitored or even noticed by the agents of repression. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating tension being a publisher and not wanting to be noticed. <laughs> it can be done. <laughs> um, what have you seen? Well, especially if egos aren't wrapped around it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's a big part of the big publishing projects. You're so wrapped in people's egos and, and the need to be seen and noticed that if you're doing it discreetly and maybe it doesn't reach as many people, doesn't go as far, but the people that actually get it, it'll probably impact more than... Like, that was one of my things with Green Anarchy. I felt like more and more people are reading it, but less they're getting less and less out of it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, again, I was all this energy going towards something that people are getting less and less out of. You have to change your strategy at some point. Yeah, I, I guess I... Um, I mean, I guess, I guess to, just to uh, express an tension that was pro is probably a, an easier-to-express tension, on the one hand, I absolutely agree with that analysis. On the other hand, people, as a as a general characteristic, people uh, associate themselves with other people more than they associate themselves with ideas, mm -hmm. and so there's something good and something bad about that for most of our political uh, intelligence. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, we don't want to personify a political perspective in an individual. We don't want this to be about how cool people are yeah. or, or some individual is we don't want to create Mao or Lenin for for a new generation on the other hand accepting the fact that like the things that attract people to radical politics is not rational is an important thing mm -hmm. and and so to me I think this problem goes both ways mm -hmm. and, and I think the better example to talk about it in other than our own projects is to talk about crime think mm. right Crime think, on the one hand, is perfectly what you're talking about, in the sense that it's there's no individual. Mm -hmm. It is, it is a phenomenon that has that is much more popular than our projects have ever been, mm -hmm. and um, and has succeeded. On the other hand, we know that there are specific individuals that mm -hmm. are very much crime think individuals, and many of the people who associate themselves. With as part of the crime thing space, identify themselves as friends with those small numbers of people, and those people have been in bands that has additionally doubled up that personal relationship to them as individuals rather than... So they're not named people like mm -hmm. rock star names, mm -hmm. but but like crime thing sort of did it both, did it both ways mm -hmm. and, and had some degree of success with that. And anyways, I'm curious your thoughts. Well, I think one way to undermine that that need for the charismatic personality that a lot of people seem to, you know, that seem to have in their lives, which I, I consider a weakness of character, is just not to pander to it in the first place. Don't don't reinforce it. I mean, there's there's other ways of getting our ideas out there. I. I find anonymity to be a really powerful and underutilized tool in mm -hmm. you know, yeah. this age of the, the hyper-spectacle or hyper-reality or right. whatever you want to call it. I mean, to, to tell the same story about Green Anarchy, I would actually say that 
if you didn't have John, the project would not have been as successful, mm-hmm. not just because he brought resources and money together, but because name recognition, the name recognition of knowing that I'm, I'm at least going to be able to disagree with one article in here. <laughs> like that was actually kind of important. <laughs> we were, we were talking in the, in the uh, when we were talking one-on-one about the strength and weakness of having all the rotating author names. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the weaknesses, actually, like there was strength in having John on the magazine, but one of the weaknesses that always frustrated me was that we were forever linked to, to his, John and Anarcho Primitivism. And Anarcho Primitivism. Yeah. And if we hadn't had that, I think the project could have even gone on longer. I, I wasn't necessarily in, inspired by the disciples of John who would make the pilgrimage yeah. to Eugene yeah. as well. And, yeah. you know. <laughs> that is an important part of the question, I, I have to say. Um, yeah, a lot of them were just regurgitating rhetoric most of the time. Yeah, yeah. They'd make the holy pilgrimage, they'd genuflect at his feet. And, <laughs> you know, we'd have to sit there and try to stomach it until they moved on. But, I mean, it was a pretty regular occurrence. And, and no, I, they cannot be part of the collective, John. And, None of them really wound up contrib- contributing anything substantial right. to the Green Anarchist Project. Well, and, and that's that's actually the direction I, I, I do think is important, is how do we inspire readers to take a, a, a next step? To um, write and contribute. Sure. Like, I was recently talking to a publisher that sort of seems like they're retiring or quitting, and I, and I said to them, I don't see this as a great success that you're leaving and that, that I get to take over your, your bid or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, but to me, our project is more successful if there are more people doing the thing. It's, you know, it, it, it absolutely makes a huge difference. And every person does bring a different flavor, a, sure. different, taste, a different taste to this. It's easier to manage it if there's less, but yeah. you're managing a more singular mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, no, I absolutely. agree. Some of my favorite times with the magazine was when we had six or seven people who technically yeah. were editors. Even if they only stayed around for one issue, yeah. that issue often had a lot more uh, of, their, of, their diversity, flavor. of their flavor to it. Exactly. Yeah, I, I hate to use the word diversity. Like they had the yeah. short, like I remember the Earth First Journal had the short term editor yeah, position. Yeah. I think they probably still And we it. talked about doing that and we kind of did it informally. Um, but that, I think, really adds life to a project. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we have a short-term uh, person in our project all the time, and I wish they made a bigger impact. Yeah, um, yeah, because we did have some short-termers who just wanted to vote on what articles to run, and that's about it. Right. And then you have right. ones who actually write a bunch of material, yeah. add provocative questions to the to the issues. You know, I know it's kind of cliche for members of our generation to like sing the praises of Crass as an anarchist project, but <laughs> you know, one thing about their model, what they would do, they had a policy, they would release one seven inch by a band, teach them how to start their own record label, how to use recording equipment, and send them on their way. And that was kind of the the agreement these bands had. And so oh. it resulted in a proliferation of independent anarchist music labels and contributed to the spread of the anarcho-punk yeah. movement, you know, f- during the duration of its lifespan. So I feel that, like, like with Little Black Cart, hopefully a lot of your apprentices will learn the necessary skills to sure. go on and do their own thing, which in a few cases that's happened, right? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, the most visible example right now is the Visceral Project out of Providence, Rhode Island, which is a former intern who went home and started a distro we 
we have tried to do a similar thing to other places, but the problem that I'm now realizing, which I didn't realize at the time, was that <clears throat> it's a it's very difficult to balance caring for the content, caring for the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Like most people can't figure out how to balance all those things, and so you don't want to throw them too much into the lake. Mm -hmm. um, that's why actually Viscera is a good idea because by starting out as a zine distro on some level, like the, the, the you're not taking big risks. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we've had people who have taken bigger financial risks, and they don't they turn out to not care so much about the content. Like mm -hmm. in other words, they're not talking about the content. We we called it the baby LBC, um, and the idea was that you could start a distro. Mm -hmm. And we would just give you a couple hundred dollars worth of books, and you know you could sort of pay as you went. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure that that was as successful as how I see Viscera as being now. Yeah. Even though there's still a beneficiary, the little black cart arrangement. But um, the example or the, the the version of this I was going to talk about was um, I really appreciate the fact, like, so for little black cart, we've always seen our content triangle. We call it which is basically like the fringes of anarchism or the blackest of anarchism, um, green anarchism, and then post-situationist material. And what's really missing, you know, to some extent, Black Seed is the thing that's, you know, producing new and fresh content in the green space. Obviously, Enemy Combatant is an example of something that's doing material in the blackest of black space. Um, but that's really slimmed down. It used to be that there was a lot more new nihilist pamphlets and mm -hmm. and uh anti-political insurrectionary anarchist stuff all of which you know of course we like and, and would carry but there's almost no one doing anything interesting in the post situation space and that's because that whole environment has been gobbled up by tycoon mm -hmm. you know anyone who would have been in that space now is is doing it as a tycoon american tycoon thing yeah and perhaps tycoon wouldn't have uh been able to declare such a monopoly on that set of ideas if a lot of the post-situationist material had been available to that generation. I mean, it, it wasn't really in circulation yeah. anymore. No, I think that's true. So a lot of people yeah. don't even know about that lineage. I mean, it, I think there also is the problem that most of the people associated with that perspective now are in their 70s or, you know, yeah. late 60s, 70s. You know, when, when you think about, you know, Joda on some level is, mm -hmm. is in that lineage yeah. and, you know, Jason is mid-60s. We probably could have been doing more ourselves to keep some of the higher quality material that came out of that milieu in circulation. But I think I just kind of assumed it would always be there because, you know, it was when I was yeah. coming of age as an anarchist. I mean, every year we still see Ken Nab sitting at a book fair. Not Bay Area. <laughs> but, you know, he looks like what he is, which is a, a, an old person selling something that, yeah. like, you know, his stuff is high quality, but he did it 25 yeah. years ago, yeah, yeah. you know? He's like an antique dealer. Yeah, a lot like that. I don't think, yeah, I don't think the post-situationist stuff is as relevant to younger people. Like, to them, it is something from the past. Yeah, that, well, I mean, there's a couple things about that. One, the way in which crime think Americanized mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. made it poopier. Yeah, yeah. Um, and two, because, <laughs> because no one young has made a new attempt at that, Yeah. because a lot of that stuff, the content is still absolutely... Sure. Appropriate more so, as far as I'm concerned, than to, than the invisible committee stuff.
because the invisible committee stuff assumes that you want to build a movement in your hometown that looks like what they're building. Mm -hmm. That's crazy sauce mm -hmm. in the U.S. context. It's crazy. No one's going to be able to accomplish in the U.S. what they can accomplish there. I mean, do you think, to the generational question again, do you think there's many people actually writing articles, essays, as there was 10, 15 years ago? Or do you think people get a lot of their writing impulse out on internet sites and things like that? So, like, I wrote my my rant on this. That's good enough now. Like, I, I feel like a lot of it's funneled in that direction now. I mean, of course that's true. Yeah. But I will say, to your point, it's worse now than it was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, there was high-quality anarchist content coming out on the internet at a quick pace. Mm -hmm. with, the, with the rise in the past decade in um, uh, social media, mm -hmm. long essays that would exist on a blog mm -hmm. have become... Twitter, twit, mm -hmm, tweets, mm -hmm. you know, 20 words. Yeah. So how do, how do you, yeah, so how does that get dealt with? How, how do you work against that? Well, I, I mean, my attitude has been maintain infrastructure uh -huh. so that so that when the fad of social media is over, uh -huh. there's some place for people to come back to. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But it's unclear that that's exactly going to be the way. Yeah. And obviously, you know, my other approach has been take the best of the internet and print it compile it into yeah. some sort of coherent thing i don't know if i mean you, i'm sure you've experienced it but you know the anarchist library i mean it is the best of the quality content uh -huh. and part of the reason why it's so high quality there's lots and lots of pdf zines on the internet but as far as i'm concerned most people who consume them download them and never really look at them again yeah they don't become part of their life in any meaningful way even enough to share it you know like Whereas um, stuff from the Anarchist Library, uh, it doesn't have that, like, uh, it's not quite as transferable. Mm -hmm. Like, or, or not transferable as the case may be. Like, meaning that the Anarchist Library forces you to commit to text, whereas PDF is, is about layout and design and yeah. all the rest. And it makes it, it, it leaves the content stranded because most people don't like to read on screens. Mm -hmm. And that's old people and young people. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't agree that the fad of social media is ever going to run its course. I think it's just going to metastasize ever deeper into the cultural fabric to the point where it's like inoperable. But I agree it's it's important to have alternatives to it in place for you know the small minority of people who don't want to participate in it. But I think by and large, I mean, look at how pervasive it is. I mean. There, ha the the past few months basically uh, is starting to show the cracks. Hmm. Um, what do you mean? <clears throat> well, there's an enormous controversy right now around Facebook. Yeah, people finally discovered that Facebook is using their information to make money, <laughs> and and the way in which it's playing out is exactly how you'd expect liberal politics to play out. Meaning that Facebook has said, "We totally agree with you." Yeah. We have we have to reform. Yeah, we don't need government intervention, but we all accept it when it comes. But but a lot of people has, have used this as an opportunity to like make it their grand statement and say I'm I'm leaving this this platform. But then they'll just adopt a new platform. But it isn't. It doesn't exist. Yeah, it currently doesn't exist. But I don't I don't understand why 
this is such a, a revelation and people are in an uproar about this. Like we've, we've known for years that Facebook has more data on U.S. citizens than the NSA. Like mm-hmm. anarchists have known this mm-hmm. for a really long time and they voluntarily participate. I mean, gleefully participate. <laughs> so that does demonstrate like that there is some human need that's being met by Facebook. Sure. But I think that um, just like any uh, another human need is to be entertained, right? And so, so at the same time that a huge portion of the population were watching television every night when they came home from work, another part of the population was saying, "Fuck that! Mm-hmm. We're not going to do it. We're not going to have a te- TV. We're not going to pay for cable. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do that." So this is very similar in that regard. Like Facebook fills a human need. I want to be able to share my baby pictures and my selfies with with a, a trapped group of people who are forced to like it. You're gonna fucking take my fucking face. You're gonna like it. Um, well, but the, but the thing is though, like the people who would not watch the TV, mm-hmm. they would generally countercultural people. Yep. yep. Countercultural people now don't. They're still on Facebook. Most of them. No, but that that's the kind of people who say I'm quitting Facebook on Monday. You're not going to see me again. It is that those people. Yeah. I'm not saying it's going to be 100 percent because obviously, yeah. plenty of our countercultural friends mm-hmm. watch TV in the 80s too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. but, 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 what we're what is happening is that there's a social bifurcation, mm-hmm. and around this topic, but the fact that anarchists abandoned open platform arguments with each other, so you know, obviously, as someone who's been deeply involved in the phenomena of internet anarchism. Um, that there is a connection to this conversation that one, and I don't have it fully fleshed out, but I will say that a bunch of anarchists, especially anarchists that are hostile to the kind of anarchism that we're interested in, mm-hmm. they said, "Fuck you, A News, fuck you, InfoShop, fuck all of you. We're going to have our political conversations on Facebook." <laughs> and of course, most of those people were not offensive to the state; they were people we would call like anarcho-liberals. But they were happy to do it on Facebook because they they want to have um, you know one of the phenomena of Facebook is called um, uh, silos that most of the people who you end up talking to more or less agree with you because you're in the silo of mm-hmm. your friendship circles and people would rather have political conversations with people who agree with them. Well, I'm happy they took their insipid discussions <laughs> to Facebook because as a non-participant in Facebook, at least I'm not subjected to it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask this. I mean, when we were doing Green Anarchy, for instance, even though I wouldn't call it hope that was driving us, I think there was a sense that there could be some transformation in the direction we were, we were, we were pushing things. Now, where there seems almost none of that left, what's going to drive people to, to participate in conversations when, when there seems to be less of a of a possibility to transform things in any meaningful way. I mean, I think that's part of the part of the reason why there's less people participating is there seems an overwhelming futility to participating in that. I don't know the answer to that question. Of course, I mean, if I were going to point at something, I would point at Occupy. And the thing that was fascinating about Occupy was how much smoke there was or how little fire yeah, there yeah. was. And I think that that's actually exactly exemplified by the Bay Area, 
The Bay Area called a day of marching about town. They literally called it a general strike. And people now in hindsight refer to that day as the day of the general strike. Nobody didn't work. All the workers were still so working. Hype. It was absolutely a hype moment. Which which we did our uh, definitely our fair share of. Like There were people coming to Eugene thinking there was this like liberated town. It was going town. on, yeah, sure. And while that does help build a snowball effect on things, at some point people are going to be like, well, wait a minute, yeah. what what's going There's three people and a bunch of seamsters hanging around it. And, you know, like... Yeah. Hype, hype can work in immediate situations like like it can work to for an event possibly but to maintain yeah. that height and we we had a sense of humor about our manipulative use of height <laughs> too and we we knew what we were doing we weren't buying into our own height but uh in the case of like you know the author of i saw fire i think he bought into his own height yeah, absolutely yeah. Sure. but i mean i, I was actually going to take the conversation that in that direction to say that the one thing that happened as soon as insurrectionary anarchism came to America was insurrection like Italian style insurrectionary anarchism is an extremely complicated thing because you basically need to know where you are like really understand the issues of the terrain mm -hmm. live there probably mm -hmm. and then you have to respond to a social need with an activity that's reproducible I mean, so like, so we can talk about, you know, in Italy, there being moments where ATMs burn mm -hmm. as like an insurrectionary moment. As soon as insurrectionary anarchism moved to, moved to the U.S., it immediately became a hype machine. Yeah. Yeah. It immediately became the new way to dress in black and smash shit yeah. in a town you don't live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a, in a big city you ended up at because the coffee was better. <laughs> yeah. And... And like, you know, when we look at the figures who sort of were, were responsible for that, that kind of uh, insurrectionary manipulation, like it's pretty different than the nerds who did a bunch of translations from, from Italian, <laughs> right? No, I mean, I mean, but it's important to say like, like nerds would not have created a hype, a hype machine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what ended up happening. Yeah, for sure. And so that's, that brings me around to, to saying that like, I distrust hype around anarchism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For me, anarchism is a lifelong grind of something that I, that because I'm an incredibly stubborn person, I've just decided that this is the thing that, to which I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I were, still lived in my hometown, I would just be a crazy person on the corner. <laughs> so, like, so that's why it makes sense that I live in a big city, which can amplify what it is that I'm doing. Sure. But in, in terms of, like, so... So really, I, I would actually, I guess, maybe add to your complication of the problem by saying that the American attitude of turning everything into hype is part of the problem here. Mm -hmm. Well, and part of that, I think, is a response to people's displacement. Because people aren't don't feel connected to their hometowns or where they grow up like they do in Europe or yeah. other places. Yeah. Uh, you know, even relationships. You know someone for six months and they're your best friend. Yep. where there's not this intergeneration upon gener. Oh yeah, I mean, my uncle. I mean, think about Battle of Seattle. Yeah, who isn't in an affinity group? Raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's it's all this. You know, people are just smushed together who don't really have any deep affinity other than they wear a black hoodie mm -hmm. or they're against this or they're 
They want there, there's nothing deeper than that. And you look at any real struggles that actually move in a in any direction, forward or backwards. There's always a cohesion that we don't have. And yeah. so, what fills that gap? Hype fills that gap. Rhetoric fills that gap. Attractive um, young people. Fill that attractive gap. young people fill that gap. Uh, sensationalism, you know, music, like things that people can sure. quickly glam onto and hold as theirs. And I say that in a in a critical of it way, but also understanding that because that's what we we were born into in this in in the United in the United States in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Like, yeah. there's not much we can claim as ours, really. So that's again, you know, even back in in the days of Eugene, that's one of the reasons I rationalized being okay with the hype is we got to somehow try to help move this thing forward and. Yeah. But then soon we realized, okay, well, 90% of the people that get drawn to that are just float to the next thing when that's over right. or it gets difficult. The nature of fads is that there's another one coming. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Pokemon replaced uh, or those robot little animals, Tucky. Oh, yeah. Anyways. I mean, I remember sitting at a campfire at John's house in like 2000 and thinking... The only anarchists around here are anti-civilization green anarchists. We got this town. <laughs> Within a year of that, the next flavor was there. Yeah. And things things don't stick around long. But it wasn't hard for you to add those to your hyphenations. <laughs> the, hyph- the hyphen is probably the most profound yeah. uh, symbol in the... In no, the- it's, it's like it, it both connects and separates. <laughs> it's like... It's it's like the dialectic. <laughs> <laughs> it's like dialectic in its simple form. Oh, anarcho hyphenist. <laughs> I I guess for you, um, what have you seen in the past few years that has inspired you? Like, have you been inspired by the the new form of social anarchism that calls itself? The Apolistas or the the Tacunists? Uh, you know, I haven't really seen much of it. Seen much of it. You were inspired by the Bundys there for a while. (laughs) (laughs) The Bundys didn't inspire. (laughs) They did not inspire me. It just pissed me off that all these leftists and liberals were making me feel sorry for the Bundys. (laughs) 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 Um, you know, Baden was that the journal that came Mm -hmm. Baden? I I thought that was interesting. Um. You know, a lot of the stuff Enemy Combatant puts out is interesting. Otherwise, a lot of it, a lot of it's stuff I would give to someone, say, hey, check this out, but it's mm-hmm. not something I would be like, oh, stoked to read. But you, reading wasn't really your thing. I can't read. I'm not saying you can't <laughs> read. I'm just saying, like, like, you came to Green Anarchy Magazine, not necessarily the backpack full of anarchist theory. No, no. I mean, no. you know, you, you had a regular... American, you did a good American liberal arts education. Yep. And you'd been involved in some green stuff. I yeah. was going to say good American liberal mindset. Right? No, you know, I went through the university system. I, I post structuralism was in my, you know, I, oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that helped, you know, in some ways. And you could drop a Foucault bomb on yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, power is complicated. <laughs> I mean, I will give some credit to that realm of thinking in turning a suburban thought he was a socialist, democratic socialist, into questioning some of that stuff in some profound ways. It didn't last long. It wore off quick. 
Um, and then oh. and then came at it more of a direct action oriented Earth First kind uh-huh. of stuff. Uh, was good at organizing people. Was good at organizing events. Um, but then I, I, you know, I would say I read most during my anar- Green Anarchist days because right. right. I really wanted you to, had dive. to catch up. I had, well, I had to catch up, and I had to dive into what was being submitted, like see if it had value. And in a way, it helped because I. I didn't have a lot of the preconceived no, notions about things. No, you would fresh your eyes. Exactly. Yeah. And was able to, how would, how would your average person just out there view this? Mm-hmm. And so. No, I actually appreciate that. In, in the Black Seed Formation currently, um, one of the people, actually, uh, you'll find this sort of surprising, one of the people in, in the current Black Seed mix is not an anarchist and has never considered himself an anarchist, but he was college friends with somebody who was super into green anarchy uh-huh. he actually went to college in eugene oh huh. and um uh, so he was like proximal yeah, yeah yeah so he's on some level the child of that generation's attitude i mean this is one of the things that i think a lot about when i think about black seed is if ga represented like the sort of end of punk like mm-hmm. punk's influence and um, by way of Leonard Cohen and, yeah. and uh, <laughs> Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan yeah. Tom, Tom Waits, Wade, yeah. known, known punk. Um, uh, but aesthetically, of course, right? Very much yeah. so. And so, like, what comes after anarcho-primitivism? What comes after, um, like, the what feels like, like, if there was a deep ecology, if deep yeah. ecology was, was as theoretically dense as maybe we can pretend it was 10, <laughs> 10 to 20 years earlier... And, and as that current sort of moved forward, what does that current look like now? And obviously, we do think that it looks something like what Dark Mountain is doing, mm-hmm. right? Literate, maybe not so manifesto-y mm-hmm. and like doctrinaire, mm-hmm. and, um, but, but building at least the conceptual bricks that look like a darker monument mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the end of this world. Um, you know that that to me feels much more like an appropriate sort of thing to say like like the same energy that fuels an anti-civilization or a green anarchist approach today is the same energy that fuels black metal i was gonna say yeah black yeah. metal mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and you know and and obviously like black metal as a genre isn't just annoying metal music mm-hmm. you know it's all these fucking loopy people acting like they're playing music in the woods <laughs> and uh <laughs> And so I'm I'm sensitive I'm sensitive to that in that like there are certain things that are like the aesthetic tastes of people today yeah. that don't make any sense to me at all yeah, yeah, yeah like the way in which sort of pop music you know the, like pop music I don't understand it today more than I didn't understand it yeah you know? where there was something about it in the 70s and 80s that at least you could understand why people right. liked it now yeah I agree it's hard to even understand that other than people are just dumber and have less taste than they ever did. I mean, I think every generation thinks that. Yeah, I think I think it is going down though. I th- I, I, I don't think I agree. Really, the one thing that the internet has done, for better and for worse, music genres and music in general has exploded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, if you wanted to make, if you want to impact the world in in a rock and roll band, mm-hmm. good fucking luck. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe you'll influence the world of SoundCloud. <laughs> right yeah yeah like in the genre that you've chosen yeah yeah yeah. but like 
I have I I don't understand yeah. all the different genres that exist mm-hmm. now that only could exist if they're if everyone's in basically a laboratory, <laughs> which is what it looks and feels like a lot. Yeah, yeah. Like there is a phenomenon now of hip hop artists that is a SoundCloud hip hop artist where they're famous and well known in SoundCloud that doesn't exist anywhere else. Wow. And they I just saw someone talking about the look of that SoundCloud rap star. The joke was like a meme. The joke was I guess a lot of them have like facial tattoos and like a certain sort of look. And they, they basically showed a picture of a packaging from um, Chipotle. And they basically said that today's rap stars from Sackcloth look like Chipotle bags. Wow. Well, you know, here here's what the, one of the differences. Before, pop culture had an influence on all these different things, music, fads. But there was also external inputs coming from all your hometown like there was a certain thing that you got from that or or whatever it might be now everything is coming from this virtual world all the inputs and so although i you know again like from the 80s mtv served a very similar role like the idea that van halen existed in my life <laughs> is because of MTV, right? Like, really, it's, yeah, it's my only connection to popular music in the 80s yeah. and 90s was MTV. Yeah. You know, I didn't listen to the radio. I didn't I right. didn't listen to music much. But once in a while, I'd flip through on the TV beyond and there was David Lee Roth. Mm-hmm. And your mom would tell you to come, come and eat dinner. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You would pray to Jesus. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I'm curious as to what else... Uh, we should accomplish in this sort of. You said something about talking shit about Sunfrog earlier. Oh right, 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 right. <laughs> so that's why we. That's why yeah, I showed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what drew me. That's why. <laughs> so most of our listeners are gonna have no idea what we're talking about here, but I start. We started this conversation out talking about our peers, and and on some level, as strange as it is to say, we did have this peer, um, who who. Actually, I think he's a little older than us, um, but but uh, his he wasn't was, a philosophical peer ever. No, he was not no. a philosophical peer. He was publishing at the same time we were. He was publishing at the same time we Showed were. Showed up at some events we were at. Yes, that's true. <laughs> at one point, actually, uh, no, we'll get into that later. Um, I, in fact, lived with him briefly. Oh, wow. Uh, at the Trumbleplex in Detroit. Uh-huh. Um, and this is when I was like an, into- an insufferable post-situationist person. There's um, even a blackmail-worthy photo of you and Sunfrog. <laughs> nearly embracing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But so, so if if in this conversation we're representing Green Anarchy magazine and Anarchy Journal of Desire Armed, uh, Sunfrog was um, involved in Fifth Estate magazine, and for a time period, it, it seemed like he was going to be the, the heir apparent, and that and that that project was going to become his or theirs. Um, and why Sunfrog is sort of like so easy to sort of make fun of is because Sunfrog appeared to live the ideology of his publication as fully as he was capable of, which is part of the reason why we refer to Fifth Estate as if it has a fixed position that might not exactly be fair. And it's definitely not fair to Peter and the people who do the, the paper today. But in our imagination, or I'll just say in my imagination, Sunf- Sunfrog personified Fifth Estate um, and that was by way of moving to Tennessee to a utopian mm-hmm. um, 
uh, hippy dippy style. It was a lifestyle, very, very clearly like, like the sort of intentional consensus pansexual. You know, sort of like. Um, I mean, I, all my reference points are even more freaky than his his were, but he was, was also really into ecumenicalism. Right. So his anarchism was a nice anarchism. Mm-hmm. Everyone's welcome at the table. Except, yeah, right, no, exactly. I mean, what's interesting today, uh, and you aren't probably as exposed to this, but I get complaints at least twice a year from someone who submitted something to mm-hmm. Fifth Estate, and they get rejected basically because it doesn't conform. They have very high editorial standards. Every article has to be like 500 words. It has to like say its thing and get and move on. And more or less, most articles have a, not exactly a positive program, but like mm-hmm. like the point of them is to is to be like join us in mm-hmm. the anti-authoritarian land of pleasure. You're saying Sunfrog established that template for the current incarnation of it. Well, now it's being enforced by the older generation who took the project yeah. away from Sunfrog or never wanted to give it to him in the first place. But he represents that in my imagination because his perspective was so hippy-dippy. It's yeah, the yeah. Unitarian Church of Anarchy. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. A, a puppet for every tendency within anarchist thought. Right. But um, but the State no longer considers itself to be necessarily an anarchist project. They have a lot of anarchist content, but you know the, they also devote a lot of energy to doing things like Ursula Le Guin is an anarchist. You should know her as an anarchist, which is true and not exactly true. It's like, like I, I would almost call it like if wishes were fishes sort mm-hmm. of publication. If you call everything what you want it to be, maybe that'll turn it into it. Mm-hmm. But so it's a, yeah. the point of this is we're we're looking for someone to blame. We're looking for a scapegoat <laughs> for the, the current condition of the state of the project. <laughs> And we're targeting Sunfrog? We're identifying him? <laughs> that was the point right there. And Sunfrog, Sunfrog became editor of Fifth Estate. You know, before over. we go any further, are you worried that he's going to unfriend you on Facebook when he hears this? <laughs> no, I'm not. First of all, I don't think he'll hear it. <laughs> he's not still involved with Fifth Not at all. But he, he does, about every other, every third epi- uh, issue of the paper, there is something by him. Hmm. Isn't he outwardly a Christian now? Doesn't he, he is outwardly a Christian. He is outwardly married okay. in a monogamous marriage. He is um, he is a minister. He is a school a school teacher. So like he has sort of I'm not sure he's rejected for the state, but but I mean his position like he you wouldn't I think call him countercultural, yeah. um, and and to some extent like the way he writes about where he's coming from i mean it just makes you your jaw drop because he used to be a wood nymph yeah you know that 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 was dancing in the forest and and now that dancing is over well don't worry we haven't changed as radically as sunfrog has we're still the same people belligerence and i (laughs) when we're talking so so we've put an artificial constraint on when we talk about our our peers because on some level we're talking about not just our age peers but people who considered projects in the same way like yeah. when you work on a magazine yeah. it's day in it's you know you're trying to do several issues a year if mm-hmm. you can which means most issues take two to three months to put together even if you have all the content mm-hmm. it's it involves this process of like engaging and engaging with ideas actively and engaging with other people actively so 
The problem today is that, first of all, if we were going to list known anarchist projects, that list is shorter than it was yep. then. Yep. And then if we're going to say, okay, well, who are the people that we know involved in those projects? Well, a lot of those people are the age we were mm -hmm. 20 years ago. And, um, and he, he represents someone who was our age peer back then, who of course is still our age peer, but it's hard to find people who are basically our age that are still yeah. involved in the anarchist project. Yeah. And why is that? And how, you know, yeah. Like, where are they? Where did everyone go? Well, I know as someone who, uh, has been deeply influenced by post-structuralism. You're not into like meta narratives, so you, know, you reject the meta narrative of anarchism. But let's just let's view it. Let's conceptualize it as a historical lineage, right? And let's look at like the factors that break that continuity. So, in the U.S., it probably started with the Palmer raids and World War One, mm -hmm. and the mass deportations, and then the buying out of the American working class after World War Two. And then there was no continuity for a long time until the 60s. Something new began. Um, but since then, and I was optimistic about that, about second wave anarchy for a while until recently, but I think since then the, the new fragmenting influence is cybernetic culture. Mm -hmm. um, in my opinion, I think that that is what has destroyed that continuity because I don't, I don't spend my life staring at an iPhone. I don't spend my life responding to texts, but there's a couple of generations now mm -hmm. that that's how they live. That's what they know. That's what they've always known. Um, Meaning yeah. they their communication is defined by it. Mm -hmm. Their personal relationships are defined by it mm -hmm. and through it. The amount of time they're willing to spend on anything mm -hmm. yeah. is huge. Like I, my reference more at this point is the music world. And I see people who go into something for 10 minutes and then are gone they're done and they move on to something else and if you're maintaining a project like we we all have it you have there has to be this okay this is what i'm doing today it's linked to what's going to happen tomorrow it's linked to what's going to happen next year there has to be almost this ongoing commitment to something that i don't think many people have at this point and i understand the desire for that but it doesn't get much much done and i think uh, yeah, I think the, the, the virtual world is one of those major things that just cut people's attention span into almost nothing. Well, let's, let's restart this conversation with a provocation. Is the world better for the projects that we have done? Is our world, let's just say the anarchist world, better for the projects that we've done? Because there is a pretty strong argument that says that we have not unleashed anarchy upon the world. Mm -hmm. And that everything is worse. Well, I mean, looking at our, our accomplishments a little more humbly, I would say, like, we've buried anarcho-syndicalism. I mean, that tendency's <laughs> been destroyed. It has no currency, no validity, no respect. Um, I don't think the AK Press version of anarchism has the respect and clout that it used it to did, 10 yeah. years ago. I mean... So yeah, I mean, our accomplishments might be small, but they're they're gratifying. I mean, to me, I mean, I feel like some of my enemies within anarchism have been have been silenced mm -hmm. um, or rendered irrelevant. So, I, I think that our conversations are far more interesting than they were yeah. fifteen years ago. Yeah, but they're true. just occurring w with a smaller group of people. Yeah, yeah, and maybe not. 
actually. When yeah. I actually measure them, I mean, I remember the table 15 years ago looked pretty much like it looks right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess... I, really I almost feel like some, some, for me, one thing that brings me happiness about what we did is, okay, for the record, this is what we... This is what we think. Sure, we have things. We have things we can like maybe sure. look back at. Maybe someone finds someday and like, wow, people are actually thinking this. Yeah. And you know, I just, I think the amount we thought we were going to be able to impact things, yeah, right, got brought back to reality. I mean, what's funny is if we could just go one back. Okay, if, if we talk about fifteen years, we go back fifteen years earlier. Yeah, like literally the the top of the heat material at that time was like, listen, Marxist. Yeah. Like Chaz Buffet's critique of, you know, like, <laughs> like, like, what they were talking about then was a was qualitatively different. Well, yeah. you know, Fifth Estate though at that point in time mm-hmm. was was cutting edge. That was, yeah, they yeah, were yeah. coming up with the the anti civilization yeah. yeah. critique I during that time. About Chaz Buffet. Yeah. In fact, if you want to go go back and look at some of the people that that belligerents was talking about that we knocked down. <laughs> Go to the review section of Green Anarchy <laughs> magazine because that's where the idols got destroyed. The big, the, we knocked over some big ones on that one. Yeah. So I, I give ourselves credit there. Yeah. I, I think Chaz Buffet at that point realized he was better off just giving private guitar lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Meeting AA meetings. <laughs> it's funny to even mention a name like that. <laughs> I completely know. forgot about it until you mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but you know what's funny is like, like no one knows who those people are today. Yeah, you know, but they can Google funny. it. Yeah, and absolutely. they'll be like, "Who are they talking shit about?" <laughs> Chaz Buffet, <laughs> Sunfrog. <Yeah>. It's true. <laughs> Michael Albert. Yeah, although Paracon was a big deal for a little bit. A little bit. What was um, the money they were gonna Paracoins? <laughs> <laughs> no, I believe that they had no money. But you know the the real big. Uh, proselytizer of Paracon in the anarchist space is this guy Tom Wetzel. Do you remember him? Sounds familiar. He was he was always a red anarchist. He was involved in this group called the WSA. And um what's funny about him is that he actually is still very is very active on Facebook and on places like that, fighting the same people he was fighting <laughs> twenty years ago, <laughs> the same topics. And and so I I occasionally sort of see what it is that they're doing and it just it's just like it's hysterical. But now it's more media. He doesn't write a letter and it gets published a couple months later. It's right. It's happening, happening. now, real time. <laughs> and he was actually one of the few allies in San Francisco to Kevin Keating. Oh wow! Which is he still around? Uh, I my my sense is that he's not. I mean, he still is active on Facebook again. Okay. But but you know, it's like two. They really come off like two crazy people howling at the moon. And I and and even with the things that we were doing, to outside, I think they saw it, people saw it at that too, as that too, as just crazy people yelling sure, at each other. Sure. And that was one of the criticisms of our review session section was, well, you're going to turn off people who aren't part of this. Yeah. And so that was always a trick. Like, how do we mm-hmm. internally critique and yet still? Well, it's it, really it's a variation of the question, like. Is there an inside? Yeah. Because you all were very responsible for drawing the line of an of an inside. Yeah. yeah and yeah. you and your preference was for the, your conversations. Yeah. To be on the inside. Yeah. Whereas of course, so many anarchists for so many years have devoted all their energy to having conversations on the to the outside. To the people. To, who don't care. Yeah. Yeah. 
yep. who don't care. And that gets back to the original question, I think, is I think articles, publications that go towards people who do care are, are internal yeah. are the only relevant ones at this point. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, it's it's as hard to fill a swallow for sure. Yeah, because that doesn't get you very far. But what it does is, the relationships on the inside can get deeper and more yeah. more flushed out. You know, as far as what what it mean, what people mean to each other, as far as ideas and motivations and all that. Well, we've actually done another hour. All right. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah.